welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies, and with me today is Greg Dolan. Greg, as many of you know, is CEO of the Methanol Institute. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tammy. So for those who don't know you, and as I was just saying before we started recording, I can't imagine who doesn't know Greg. But for those who do not, as I said, he is the CEO with the Methanol Institute. He has been in various senior management positions within the Institute over the past 20 years. And in June of 2014, he was appointed as permanent CEO of the uh, Methanol Institute. I always want to say MI, but it is MI for short. (laughs) So Greg manages MI's offices in Washington, D.C., Singapore, Brussels, and Beijing while directing international government relations, media relations, public education, and outreach efforts. He has presented papers on methanol-related topics at more than 50 international conferences. I bet that's more. And he's authored many, (laughs) I was going to say, authored uh, many magazine articles and written book chapters on the methanol industry. So Greg came to MI after spending a decade in a variety of public information positions in uh, New York State, including the Department of Environmental Conservation. So it's a long and distinguished career in the methanol industry, and there's so much happening within the methanol industry, which I thought would be really great to talk about today. So I'm going to go right into it, Greg. Super. (laughs) Let's do it. Uh, That means, (laughs) let's do this. So yeah, I'm going to subject you to my five-part question. Not kidding. I'm kidding. It's only three parts. So there is a lot of interest. I think a lot of interest and a lot of confusion on the Chinese fuel market, just exactly what's happening there. And we know that methanol has been used in the Chinese market for a long, long time. So first of all, to kind of get us started off here, can you talk to us a little bit about the market dynamics of the fuel market in China and what's happening specifically with with methanol there. So that's my first question. And my second question is, beyond the Chinese market, where do you see the market growing for methanol blending in fuels? Sure, that's great. I'm happy to talk about China to get us started. China, like a lot of products, China is now the world's largest methanol producer and consumer. When we talk about methanol fuel blends in China, there's really two uh, distinct markets today. The first is the use of M15 and gasoline. That's 15% methanol blended with 85% gasoline. That's a market that's been going for more than a decade now. According to official statistics, um, in 2017, there was roughly 2.5 million metric tons blended in gasoline in China. We use metric tons to measure methanol. A metric ton is 333 U.S. gallons. So that 2.5 million metric tons equates to uh, over 800 million gallons of methanol. And that's the official blending is M15. And then there's the unofficial blending. So where (laughs) M15 is typically blended is in 14 provinces that have their own standards or specifications that allow for methanol fuel blending. There are other areas in China that are unofficially blending M15, and it's really just driven by economics. Um, You know, in China, uh, they largely control the pump price at the retail level, 
but you have to buy the, the gasoline uh, in a global market. Methanol is a much cheaper blend stock. So there's a, an incentive to put methanol into the fuel pool. So while the official number may be something around 8.5 million metric tons for M15, it, it may be double that. But it, it's difficult wow. to see because there's, when you look at supply demand in China, there's always sort of this gap, this unattributable uh, volume. Uh, some of it is illegal fuel blending. And some of it we're finding is uh, other markets that are taking place in China that we can get into uh, in a couple of minutes. But besides M15, we're also now seeing this growing market for M100, uh, the use of neat methanol as a fuel. And that's happening in a couple ways. The first is retrofitting of taxis. There are now something like 100,000 taxis in China that have been retrofitted to run on M100. You can essentially buy a kit on the internet. It's 600 RMB, 100 US dollars. Uh, they put a, a a tank in the trunk. They put fuel lines in. They change out the ECU, and within an hour, you can be running on M100. So that's about a hundred thousand vehicles right now, consuming somewhere around a million metric tons or three hundred and thirty million US gallons. Why are they doing it? it? It's pure economics. So the taxi drivers save thirty percent on their fuel costs every month. And the other way we're seeing M100 coming into the market is with now vehicles that are uh, new builds for M100. The leader there is Geely Automotive Group. Geely has so far introduced about 7,000 M100 taxis. Again, the taxi fleet, because they're such high fuel users and are very price sensitive. So it's a really good fleet to get into. Also, you can look at centralized fueling facilities, uh, so the infrastructure requirements are less. The expectation for Geely is that their fleet of M100 vehicles is going to grow to about 20,000 taxis in just the first half of this year. Most of that going into two specific cities, Xi'an and Guiang. And if you look at 20,000 taxis, well, each of those taxis is going to consume 10 to 15 metric tons of methanol per year. So that 20,000 taxis represents a total demand annually of around you know, 67 million gallons of methanol. Now, Geely has the production capacity to produce much more. They have two M100 engine manufacturing plants. They have three uh, automotive facilities to build cars. So their production capacity is closer to 300 to 500,000 cars per year. And in terms of methanol demand, you know, if all those cars were built and hit the road and consumed N100, you'd be looking at a demand of somewhere between 1 to 1.7 billion gallons of methanol for those taxes. So, so is Geely looking at ramping up its capacity in that, in that direction, you know, to, to, to reach that kind of utilization and produce those kinds of vehicles? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think what Geely's done is made this uh, transition from pilot scale to promotion and commercial introduction. So, you know, going from a total fleet now of 7,000 vehicles uh, up to 20,000 in the next couple of months, that's a big ramp up of production. But now Geely is looking at methanol really across their whole fleet of vehicles. So, methanol has become sort of ingrained 
within all their engineering and all their vehicle thinking. It's so unique because, I mean, they have their methanol. I mean, when you think of Geely, you know, the first thing for, for people who are car, either in this industry or are car enthusiasts, is all of their work on the electric vehicle side, not what they're doing on methanol. So it's it's a very interesting, you know, um, strategy to pursue electric vehicles methanol and then the the conventional vehicles but there it's it's um it's very unique would you say i think in terms of auto industry powertrain strategy yeah i, I think there's two elements to that and and, and lee shufo the chairman of geely sort of talks about both and the first is that when lee shufo talks about methanol he also talks about methanol as being liquid sunshine and by that mm. uh, he means that you know methanol today is made Conventionally, from the steam reformation of natural gas in China, they make quite a bit of it from coal gasification. But methanol can be made from a wide range of biomass and renewable feedstocks. So, what he's looking at is that future where renewable methanol becomes an e-fuel. So, liquid fuels can be produced renewably. You know, if you look at at Li Shufo and sort of the second aspect of that, when he's talking about M100 vehicles. There's also an ability to work with electric platforms. In fact, we talk about methanol as an e-fuel and also making electric platforms more practical. And I'll give you an example there. Just this week, China startup Airways, uh, which is a, a battery electric EV company in China, has partnered with Blue World Technologies. The Blue World of Technologies is one of our member companies at the Methanol Institute. They make mm -hmm. reform methanol fuel cells. So what you're looking at here is taking a methanol fuel cell, putting it on a battery electric EV, and now instead of having to recharge the batteries, the fuel cell acts as almost a generator. It's continuously charging the batteries. Instead of having to plug in a car and charge it for a couple hours or or quick charges are certainly faster, but here with, you're filling up your EV with methanol, and it's a three-minute fill-up just like you fill up with gasoline. And what that means is you can take your standard battery electric vehicle that might have a range of 200 to 300 kilometers and take that to 800 to 1,000 kilometers. So I think part of what we're looking at methanol is not just making today's cars cleaner with internal combustion engine, but also making battery or electric platforms more practical by providing extended range. So in terms of other markets that you see for methanol blends, M15, M85, M100, you know, what else do you, you see on the horizon there? What other markets are, are developing or, or yeah. could develop? There's a couple. Um, and, you know, when we look at methanol as a solution for gasoline or diesel engines, we look at low-level blends. In Europe, the Fuel Quality Directive, uh, EN228, European Fuel Standard, allows you to blend up to 3% methanol and gasoline. And we are seeing markets that are doing that today, predominantly in the United Kingdom, where they typically blend 1% methanol and gasoline in the summer months, one and a half in the winter months. Methanol is one of the fastest growing biofuels sold in the United Kingdom. Wow. And now, that. you know, one of the things that, that I know, Tammy, you've been talking quite a bit about is octane mm -hmm. and looking at mid-level alcohol blends to provide higher levels of octane. 
methanol is at 109 octane. It's got tons of octane, right? Um, mm-hmm. Works well in spark ignition engines. If you're using methanol as a fuel and blending it with gasoline, you need a co-solvent. Ethanol is a great co-solvent for methanol fuel blending. So you can look at mixed mid-level alcohols, methanol and ethanol together. And that's being done today in Italy. So at the end of 2017, uh, the Italian prime minister held a press conference with the CEOs of ENI, one of the world's largest integrated oil and gas majors, and Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, one of the world's largest automakers. And they talked about pathways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles. And one of the pathways that they're looking at is a fuel that ENI developed. It's an A20 blend, and that's 20% alcohol. In this case, it's 15% methanol and 5% ethanol. This A20 blend uh, is currently being demonstrated in a pilot fleet of vehicles in Milan, standard Fiat 500 uh, cars, standard E10 cars that are using this A20 blend. It's affordable, uh, has low emission configuration, and also they're using this blend without any changes to the vehicles. And it's what Fiat Chrysler says, it's transparent. This A20 blend is transparent when used in an E10 vehicle. So, you know, those mid-level high-octane blends can certainly include methanol as a blend stock. It's the octane that helps you get more efficient vehicles, allows you to Mm -hmm. downsize engine, higher compression ratios, more turbocharging, more direct fuel injection, you know, methanol, um, high heat of vaporization. There there are other factors of the physical properties of methanol that make it a great blend stock with gasoline for uh, high efficient vehicles. And of course, the name of the game is greenhouse gas reduction. That's the name of the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, (laughs) Here again, we can talk about methanol uh, being a future-proof fuel because we do have renewable pathways that I think we'll probably get into a little bit later in the discussion. And then there's the high-level blends. There's the M100 cars and taxis that that Geely's doing. In China, they're also doing M100 heavy-duty vehicles. So FAW has a M100 heavy-duty engine that they're selling for trucks. Yutong Bus is putting M100 engines in buses. Geely has also shown M100 bus, heavy, and medium-duty trucks. So there's also that use of methanol for heavy-duty engines. And, of course, methanol is also a derivative for blend stocks like uh, biodiesel, fame, uh, and also DME, OME, DMM are all good diesel substitutions in which methanol can play a significant role. So what about another market that I hear a lot about is India. How is that market developing there? India began looking at the the methanol economy uh, for the country back in 2016. And, you know, India has really high levels of uh, oil and refined gasoline input uh, imports. They're looking at ways of reducing uh, their dependence on imported fuel. They're also looking at ways to reduce fuel costs and looking for fuels that can work in their existing fleet of vehicles, which is a mix of cars and mm-hmm. three-wheelers and two-wheelers, everything <laughs> between a Euro 3 and a Euro 4 and below. So yeah. it, it, it's you know a, a very diverse fleet of vehicles. And 
they've been looking at the methanol economy because you know, methanol can be produced from a wide range of feedstocks. They're looking at using uh, their coal resources for methanol production. They're looking at biomass resources like municipal solid waste. They do have some stranded gas fields that are hard to get to market and small-scale methanol using stranded gas can also make sense for them. I've been wanting to write about this forever, but this concept of the flaring gas and, and capturing the flaring gas and turning that into methanol, I would think... With all the reliance, you know, the, the huge refineries that have been built there, that that would be a really another pathway, so to speak. Yeah, that, that, absolutely. And and we're seeing companies that, you know, have been focused on building uh, mega methanol plants, companies like Johnson Matthey, Haldor Topso, uh, Lurgier Liquide, are now introducing technologies for small-scale methanol production. And that can be going from you know, a world-scale methanol plant today is 5,000 tons per day. A small scale could be 500 tons per day or less. And there you can use much smaller gas fields, flare gas, stranded gas. All those become um, viable for methanol production. And then, you know, for India, one of the things they've been looking at is the China model using M15. And they've got now a standard for M15 fuels that was largely adopted from what was done in China, as well as a national standard that was adopted in Israel two years ago. They're doing some work now with the Automotive Research Association of India that's testing pilot vehicles running on M15, four-wheelers, three-wheelers, two-wheelers, and they're hoping for a, a fairly rapid rollout of an M15 fuel blend in the country. And that's something that we're assisting them with. But if you look at what's going on in India when they talk about a methanol economy, it encompasses so much more. They're doing today uh, in um, Assam State, uh, Assam Petrochemical has uh, 500 cook stoves that are being used by their own employees in their homes using Mm -hmm. neat methanol as a cook stove fuel rather than LPG. It's much cleaner. It's, it reduces the health impacts from uh, cook stoves inside a home, and it's affordable. They're also looking at methanol for their inland waterways. India is really looking at expanding their inland waterway system to get vehicles, trucks off the road uh, and moving more by barge. And they're looking at methanol there. They're looking at methanol for their fishing fleets. They're even looking at methanol for the Indian railways which is one of uh, India's largest consumers of diesel fuel. So when India talks about the methanol economy, there are a lot of different elements that really become an economy. You know, Ideally, they're looking at uh, reducing 30% of their imported fossil fuels with fuels like methanol. So they see methanol as making a significant impact on reducing local pollution as well as providing uh, domestic fuel resources and something that can save consumers money. I think it's a nice segue into my next question, which is, it seems to me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, you know, some markets or governments and or governments are more enthusiastic about methanol blends. So, you know, I'm talking about light and heavy duty vehicles. Some markets are more enthusiastic while others 
you know, have been, you know, a bit more reluctant. <laughs> I think it's a nice way of putting it. So why is that? You know, what's, what's the difference in the, the dynamics? You know, why is it, um, you know, why is it that way? Why is there, why has there been so much support in a market and government uh, like China and less so, I would say, here in the United States as a, as a comparison? You know, I come at this as perspective of being the CEO of a trade association and being a lobbyist. I think you and I mm-hmm. both take a lot of this from a public policy perspective. And, you know, yeah. when it comes to vehicles and transportation markets, you know, if you look at our, our current system, vehicles running on gasoline and diesel, those are high energy density fuels. Often we see public policy really supporting low energy density fuels, whether it's battery electric hydrogen fuel cells, or to some extent, even compressed natural gas and liquefied natural gas. Those are low energy density fuels. The alcohol fuels, both methanol and ethanol, are much more practical alternatives that really close that energy gap between the existing liquid fuels we're using today and those more almost aspirational low energy density fuels. You know, for years, uh, you've seen uh, policies from governments, whether it was California or Europe or uh, or even China, that have been supporting increasing uh, promise of zero emission vehicles. And often what they find, and uh, I'll use China as an example, is that to get more of those EVs and fuel cell vehicles on the market, the government really has to step in and provide heavy levels of subsidies. So right now, if you're a municipal bus authority in China, you can practically get an electric bus for free with the level of supports provided by the central government. You know, that is not sustainable. You can't do that on a long-term basis. And in fact, China is looking at doing away with a lot of those subsidies in 2020. Now, one of the policies that we're working on in China is with the Ministry of Industry and Information Technologies, MIT. MIT began a pilot demonstration looking at methanol-fueled vehicles in 2012. And this is really M100 cars, trucks, and buses. The program began in five provinces, expanded to a number of provinces and cities. They completed the pilot demonstration stage at the end of last year. All the pilot programs were very well managed uh, and accepted, 1,000 vehicles, 200 million kilometers of experience. So what MIT is doing now is developing a methanol policy paper. Uh, It's in its final review stages. Uh, Recently, the Ministry of Environmental Protection signed off on this paper, and it'll put methanol on the map of public policy moving towards promotion. And what we're looking at the Chinese government doing is moving towards a call it a, a a double credit program. So they'll basically provide disincentives for people that buy gasoline and diesel vehicles, incentives for those that buy cleaner vehicles, whether it's battery electric, natural gas, hydrogen, and methanol. So we're sort of bringing methanol into that public policy framework in, mm-hmm. in China. And we think that that's going to make a big difference. I mean, I was in Kunshan, China in November at an expo 
saw a lot of different vehicles, including a number of M100 cars from many different Chinese domestic automakers. And when you talk to them, so the car's ready, we're just waiting for the policy. So once the policy is in place, uh, we do expect to see many more automakers get into that M100 market in China. So, you know, here, public policy can can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. You know, often we see tax policy uh, making a huge difference in alternative fuels. In fact, where we've seen some of the M15 market in China erode, it's been due to taxation policy. So taxes have a big impact uh, on what happens. You know, when you, you take all that together, different markets, different feedstocks, uh, different policy drivers, certainly in Europe, the driver right now is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Just in December, the representatives of the European Commission, Parliament, and the Council agreed on a compromise setting binding CO2 emission targets for all new passenger cars and light commercial vehicles for 2025 mm-hmm. to 2030. You know, they're basically taking the car fleet from an average of uh, 119 grams per kilometer first down to 95 by 2021, 81 grams per kilometer, 2025, 59 grams per kilometer, 2030. And automakers that don't meet those targets are going to be penalized on every car that they sell. Uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't meet those targets. So that becomes a significant uh, incentive for automakers to find ways of reducing even single grams of CO2 per kilometer. That's one of the reasons why you've got now ENI and Fiat Chrysler partnering in Italy to introduce this A20 blend. They already have a national standard for this A20 blend in Italy. They've also started some discussions with uh, the SEN the European standards body about mm-hmm. taking this A20 blend towards a European wide standard. So public policy can make a huge difference uh, on where we see vehicle introduction. Yeah, I do think, you know, in China, I think that the way that they set up their new energy vehicle policy to penalize or at least limit the access to the purchase of gasoline vehicles in favor of battery electric and other types of vehicles, I I think has been because people want a car. Now they've got money, they've got some money and they want a car and they'll just buy it because they want a car. So um, I think that policy has been really, um, if if I had to to vote, I think of all the things that the Chinese government has done, I think that's one of the, the top ones, you know, is sort of controlling that access and tilting it towards these you know, other types of vehicles. And I kind of wonder if other countries are looking at that and that, that they'll begin to follow it. I think some, I think some will. But that said, I wanted to ask you, so there's so much going on. I mean, we didn't even get into, and, and maybe you, you will when I ask this question. I mean, there's so much going on with methanol and transport. I mean, we've really just been talking about methanol blends for light and heavy-duty vehicles, but there's obviously stuff going on in shipping and and all these other things. What are the biggest opportunities, in your view, for the methanol market in the next, let's say, 10 to 20 years? I think you've touched on one, and and that's shipping. Uh, And, you know, the shipping industry is under 
huge pressure right now from the International Maritime Organization to reduce sulfur emissions. The global requirement for sulfur goes from 3.5% to 0.5% in 2020. And largely, the shipping industry hasn't quite figured out how it's going to get there. <laughs> you know, I think there's now something like maybe 2,500 vessels equipped with scrubbers out of 90,000. There will be the introduction of low-sulfur marine gas oil, so taking heavy fuel oil and then uh, selling a product that has sulfur levels that are compliant with the IMO standard. But the question becomes, at what cost? Heavy fuel oil is pretty cheap. It's the bottom of the barrel. It's you know that thick black crude. Marine gas oil or low-sulfur marine gas oil is going to be much more expensive as the demand skyrockets. You know, I've seen estimates that marine gas oil may increase by anywhere between 20 and 60%. The shipping industry mm-hmm. it runs on real thin margins, so that cost is going to be passed along to everybody that buys any product that's ever been on a ship. Which and, is all of us, basically. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. And you know, methanol is emerging as one of the options or alternative fuels from the marine sector. There are some boats on the water today. One of our members, Methanex, has a wholly owned uh, shipping subsidiary, Waterfront Shipping, that currently operates seven dual-fuel chemical tankers. So they're moving methanol on tanker ships that are using either methanol or diesel fuel. And methanol, of course, is compliant with the sulfur rule. They're using uh, slow-speed MAN two-stroke engines really large engines on the ships. Uh, Methanex has ordered uh, four more of these vessels. The One of the world's largest Ropax ferry, the Stena Germanica, operates between Gothenburg, Sweden, and Kiel, Germany. That runs on uh, four-stroke, medium-speed Wurzilla engines. For those MAN and Wurzilla engines, they're really just using diesel as a pilot fuel. So they use 5% diesel, and then 95% methanol in those engines. Nothing changes inside the engine. It's all the injector and the fuel rail system and the methanol delivery. Um, So it is both good for new builds and for retrofits. We're doing work looking at methanol for uh, smaller scale or short sea shipping, ferries, workboats, tugboats, pilot boats, even pleasure craft. All could be using uh, methanol instead of diesel. There are different technologies to use methanol as a diesel substitute. For years, Scania has sold an ED95 engine that runs on 95% ethanol with an ignition uh, improver. Those are running on buses in Europe, but we've tested uh, uh, those Scania engines running on MD95, so 95% methanol with 5% ignition improver. You can also look at more advanced concepts. Um, You can look at um, things like homogeneous charge compression ignition, partial premix combustion, or PPC, um, where you, again, take advantage of methanol's high heat of vaporization, high autoignition temperature of methanol, and look to keep the methanol inside the combustion chamber essentially longer. You can also look at port fuel injection. For methanol, where you're putting the methanol directly into the engine's intake ports. You can also take a heavy-duty spark ignition engine, uh, like the CNG or LNG engines, and instead of using 
natural gas use methanol in those spark ignition engines. So one of the benefits here, the diesel substitution market, it, it sort of crosses uh, different boundaries. It can be used in ferries or workboats. Those same engines are also used in heavy-duty trucks and buses, diesel, gensets. So that diesel substitution market could be an important one for methanol uh, going forward. You know, the other thing, when you look at the diesel market, there's a lot less players. There are less engine manufacturers. So if you get a couple diesel engine manufacturers that have a methanol off- offering, it's a lot easier to have a, a global, uh, globally available product. I know India has talked quite a bit about wanting methanol buses as well as the inland waterways. Again, we're seeing some of those vehicles being uh, introduced and, and on the market uh, in China today. You know, China is also looking at fishing fleets uh, as well as their inland waterways. So that diesel substitution market could be uh, an important market for methanol going forward. So when we start to, because, you know, one of the things that I have uh, pointed out to clients and um, even, you know, blog readers is, well, you know, the real, real game here is not 2020, my friends, uh, when it comes to the IMO. I mean, everybody's running around crazy, like, you know, like we didn't know these requirements were going to be put into place, you know, for the last, you know, what, 15 years or whatever. But I think the real game is not sulfur reduction. I think the real game is the initial strategy, which is that that 50% uh, reduction target that the IMO wants to hit, I believe, by, what, 2030, I think. So how does methanol fit into that? Is is methanol still, you know, a viable option at at this point? Because I think well, if I were a if I were a ship owner, if I were a ship owner, I'd probably be putting it off until 2028. <laughs> but no, but uh, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Sorry to anyone in the in the ship industry who might be listening <laughs> to this. Um, if I were in in the industry, I'm thinking, okay, I've got 2020. I need to make investments, but I also need know that this is coming and um, efforts to defeat or roll this back are, I think at this stage, most likely not going to be successful. So I need to be making my investments for 2020, but I also need to be making my investments for 2030. Where does methanol fit into that picture? Yeah. In fact, we put out a report two weeks ago, a renewable methanol report that's available on our website at methanol.org. And what we're doing there is looking at methanol uh, from a wide range of renewable feedstocks. Methanol can be an ultra-low carbon uh, fuel produced from either sustainable biomass or from carbon dioxide and hydrogen produced from renewable electricity. If you have uh, renewable methanol, you're looking at dramatic cuts in greenhouse gas emissions technologies that have shown to reduce CO2 emissions by 95%. Oh, and at the same time, you're reducing NOx by 80% and virtually eliminating uh, SOx and particulate matter. The methanol molecule itself, uh, CH3OH, has no carbon-to-carbon bonds, so it does not produce soot. Methanol has the highest hydrogen-to-carbon ratio of any liquid fuel. And we're now seeing a wide range of commercial introduction of renewable methanol technologies. Our report highlights case studies for for three companies. 
BioMCN, uh, which is in mm-hmm. the Netherlands. They're producing methanol from biomethane. Enerchem, which is in Canada and is also looking at producing uh, methanol, basically gasifying municipal solid waste to produce methanol uh, as a biomass source. And they're looking at uh, moving from Canada to plants in Port of Rotterdam, uh, United States, in China. And then there's Carbon Recycling International, uh, CRI. Their George Ola methanol plant, which is named for the Nobel Prize laureate from University of Southern mm-hmm. California, uh, was built next to Iceland's famous Blue Lagoon. The mm-hmm. Blue Lagoon is actually wastewater from a geothermal power plant next door. So yeah. here what CRI is doing is taking that geothermal power, producing hydrogen through the electrolysis of water, taking CO2 from that plant, and combining the CO2 and hydrogen to make synthesis gas and then make renewable methanol. They call their product Vulcanol, and they've been demonstrating that product <laughs> in several uh, Geely M100 cars. But what our report also highlights is the large number of companies and research institutions globally that are now working on the commercial introduction of renewable methanol technologies. And you know why is that important in the context of uh, the IMO and shipping is you know when they look towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions, it'll be hard to find enough biomethane or, or mm-hmm. bio natural gas to meet right. shipping requirements. Certainly, the fossil fuels, uh, whether it's heavy fuel oil or low sulfur marine gas oil, is not going to get you there. But Methanol can be produced from a wide range of renewable feedstocks. So we do consider methanol to be a future-proof marine fuel. Today, conventional methanol produced from the steam reformation of natural gas will give you a slight greenhouse gas emission benefit over the diesel fuels. Not as um, good as liquefied natural gas, but you do get a benefit. But ultimately, you can produce uh, methanol that has... Uh, 95% CO2 reduction. And, you know, that's the kind of fuel that would be uh, exciting for shipping. And again, you know, when we're talking about methanol, it's not just for use in internal combustion engines, but also fuel cells. Now, the shipping industry has become very enamored lately with looking at uh, fuel cell technology. And methanol as a hydrogen carrier, as a liquid at room temperature, ambient pressure makes very practical hydrogen carrier fuel for fuel cell technologies. In fact, a a gallon of liquid methanol holds more hydrogen than a gallon of liquefied hydrogen that you've, oh, by the way, have to keep it minus 350 degrees uh, in a storage. (laughs) No problem. No problem. (laughs) And on a ship. Um, And so, you know, methanol offers that more practical and future-proof fuel for shipping. And, you know, when we talk about shipping, we often think about, you know, the the big container ships moving all those products across the ocean, but the shipping sector is much larger. The short sea shipping, the inland waterways, the work boats, the pilot boats, the pleasure craft, it'll be a lot harder to put an LNG tank on a tugboat than it will using a liquid fuel like methanol. And similarly, if you're looking at a cruise ship, where you've got a big hotel load, you know, a lot of electricity is used in the cabin. 
methanol can be used and distributed power using fuel cells throughout a cruise ship. And the cruise industry has become very interested in, in looking at methanol, not just for propulsion of the cruise ship, but also for that hotel load for fuel cells and distributed power across a vessel. And you can say the same thing about military vessels, where you know, you're concerned that all your electricity or propulsion is coming from one place in the engine room. If a destroyer gets hit in the engine room, that, that ship becomes out of commission. But if you've got distributed power using methanol fuel cells throughout the vessel, then that defense ship can, can t- continue its mission. So the last question I wanted to ask you is, you know, when we talk about the range of possible applications by transport mode and, and the different types of fuels out there, can you talk a little bit about your view about electrofuels or power to X or EV fuels? Like you kind of have a, a number of different names. Um, do you really see potential there? And um, and if so, what do you think, in your best estimation, the timeline for commercialization would be? You know, I'm writing about these fuels now. I just did a, a, a something about on uh, OME. You know, it seems like there's a lot of possibilities, but it's not like anyone's put concrete in the ground yet, so to speak. One of the things that we point out in our renewable methanol report uh, is that if you look at the renewable electricity market, there are a lot of curtailments. Take the example of Germany, where the transmission system operator in 2017 paid wind power producers, wind turbine operators, a billion euros not to put their electricity onto the grid. Often wow. the wind is blowing at night when they don't have demand. So they're essentially paying the wind turbines to turn off the system. As an electrofuel, uh, you can produce liquid methanol from those electrons. So instead of putting them into the grid at night, you can put them into an electrolyzer, turn those electrons into hydrogen, combine it with a source of CO2, whether it's from power plant uh, emissions, delivered CO2, or even catalytically stripped from the atmosphere. Uh, you can produce methanol as an e-fuel and avoid those kind of curtailments. So the report that we put out last week or two weeks ago talks about using renewable methanol to help balance your uh, renewable electricity load. You know, here in the United States, there are a lot of curtailments of uh, wind and solar power in places like California. And again, methanol is a practical liquid fuel that you can move around is a good way of taking those electrons and turning them into something that's liquid and practical that can be used as a fuel. In terms of timing, part of the issue we have here is if you're producing renewable methanol, it does come at a premium. So, you know, today the spot price of methanol is probably somewhere around a dollar, dollar twenty a gallon. It's a pretty uh, affordable molecule today. Mm-hmm. So if you're producing methanol from a renewable feedstock, you're definitely going to have a premium. So there again, you can look at the, the intersection of public policy. Are there incentives that can help narrow that gap in the incremental cost of the cleaner fuel? In Europe, uh, the Renewable Energy Directive uh, will provide incentives to produce uh, a renewable methanol and put it into a fuel market. 
So again, public policy can help narrow that gap and introduce these uh, e-fuels and uh, accelerate their time to market. And if you're looking at you know a system operator in Germany that's spending a billion euros to turn off the the turbines, there's a, an economic incentive there. There's a value proposition. I wouldn't give you an exact timeline of you know when um, renewable methanol is going to compete with natural gas based product in the market, but certainly public policy frameworks can help accelerate uh, and narrow that gap and bring those technologies to market quicker. And just the fact that we're seeing such interest now in producing renewable methanol from a wide range of feedstocks, and one of Europe's Europe's largest electric utilities, uh, Energy, is producing renewable methanol today from hydropower, and they're using that renewable methanol in a boat. Uh, it's in a small tourist ferry operating on a lake in Germany, uh, using methanol for propulsion in a fuel cell uh, power system. There are a lot of those synergies uh, between renewable methanol electric platforms. And again, we do see methanol as a future-proof fuel. All right. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Greg so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you. And there was much, much more we could have talked about here. If you're looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. I also have a service called the Future Fuels Outlook, which you can take a look at on the site as well. Thanks again for listening. 